Thank you, brother. It's, it's great to be back with you guys at Champion Forest. I've had the uh, privilege of coming occasionally, off and on during the past three years, and I always look forward to the opportunity. When Mark uh, finished the Through the Bible study and started church history, I told him he had moved out of an area that I knew something about to one that I didn't know much about. So uh, I was glad when Charles Mickey filled in recently instead of uh, Mark asking me. But today it's my turn and, uh, and I'm happy to be here even though this is not something I feel like an expert in by any means. I wanted to mention my website in case you are not familiar with it. I think you might enjoy going there sometime. It's uh, easy to remember, edwardfudge.com. And uh, there are thousands of pages of biblical and spiritual resources there free of charge. Uh, three times a week I send out a little devotional called Grace Mail. It goes to 4,200 people around the world in all denominations, and uh, you're very welcome to subscribe to that at no charge if you're interested as well. The lesson this morning in this uh, church history series is on St. Ambrose, who lived roughly between the time of the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, which you've talked about in earlier lessons. Ambrose was later Bishop of Milan in Italy, and uh, this morning the plan is to say a little bit about Ambrose for several minutes since uh, some of the crises that he faced in confronting power in the government in the name of the church. And then uh, Mark invited me to share some, some stories from my own life and my uh, parents' and grandparents' lives, which also illustrate the same kind of thing we're talking about here. Ambrose was born in what's now Germany in 339 A.D. and lived until 397 his father died when he was a young man and his family moved to Rome, which was, of course, the center of the empire in the West. His parents were of Roman nobility. In Rome, Ambrose studied classics and languages. He probably spoke Greek uh, as, as his native language and also Latin he knew. He studied law and classics and at age 26 became a lawyer in, in the service of the uh, Roman government. When he was 31 years old, he was appointed governor of several provinces with his headquarters at Milan in Italy. And sometime shortly after that, the bishop at Milan, a man named Auxentius, who was an Arian, and if you have been part of the class, you may remember that Arians were those people who said that Jesus was a created being and not part of the eternal Godhead. Auxentius, the bishop of Milan, died, and this left a gap which became a political uh, subject and object. And so there, the, there came to be quite a lot of competition between Arians and Trinitarians for the next bishopric, which escalated eventually into violence. As the, uh, as the political leader in the, in the area, Ambrose was, re was responsible for maintaining the peace and he did attempt to do that with some success. His own views, it may be, were not widely known because both sides in the controversy asked him to be bishop. And so he moved from being a political figure to being a religious leader and became bishop at Milan in Italy. One of the first things he did on becoming a bishop uh, was, to, was to sell off his family fortune and donate the money to the poor or to the church. Later, he required all of his clergy to do the same, and he became one of the leaders in the asceticism movement 
uh, and taking vows of poverty. As a bishop, he studied theology because he had not been trained to be a bishop or churchman originally. And he did quite a bit of writing. Some of his sermons and other writings are still available to be read. His emphasis was usually on holy living rather than theology as such. And he was more of a practical turn of mind. He may be most notable for a couple of things other than his writings. For one, he was bishop when uh, another man became a Christian who is known now as St. Augustine, or some people call him St. Augustine. And and, uh, Ambrose was bishop at Milan when Augustine became a Christian and was his mentor to some extent, although their relationship was apparently confrontational at times and somewhat rocky. And uh, some sources say that it was it's a very mixed story and difficult to know what kind of relationship they really had. But Ambrose is the man who officially uh, inaugurates Augustine into the church later and he becomes a great theologian. The other thing Ambrose is noted for is his confrontation with power. And in your outline uh, or in your handout, Mark has made the comment that he was one of the first political or first religious leaders after the Old Testament prophets to confront power and political f- power directly uh, in an adversarial way. Of course, this becomes very common in the Roman Empire later, and as the uh, as the church becomes more powerful, it, 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 it takes on the role of even deposing political people from time to time. And later in England, you have the confrontations with Canterbury and so forth, King Henry and Becket and all of that. But uh, one of the first churchmen to do this was in the 300s, and that was uh, Ambrose who we're talking about today. One of his first confrontations came when he was shortly after he became a bishop. The emperor was a young man, actually a boy named Valentinian, whose mother really ran the empire behind the scenes, and her name was Justina. Justina was an Arian. That is, she belonged to the party that Nicaea had condemned, which taught that Jesus was a created being rather than part of the eternal Godhead. Uh, Ambrose was not an Arian, and so Justina, the mother of the boy emperor, began to scheme how she could hurt Ambrose's authority, if not destroy him altogether. And she demanded that he give a church building to Arians. Uh, I suppose she demanded this through her son, the boy emperor. He refused, and she demanded it again, and he refused again, and she summoned him to the royal palace. And at this point, she said, because of your stubbornness and uh, refusal to obey earlier, I'm not just asking for any church. I'm asking for your own basilica, the very church out of which you work. You must donate that to the Arians. At this point, Ambrose, in Old Testament prophetic style, confronted the emperor's mother, who was the real power behind the throne, and said, Jesus taught us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. And he said, as far as my power, I will gladly give you that, uh, because that's earthly. If you demand my possessions, I'll give you that. If you even ask for my clothes, I'll give you my clothes. But the church belongs to Christ, and I will not give you a church because I must give God what belongs to God. At this point, she called in troops. Uh, When they were resisted by his church members, 
they eventually withdrew and he, he uh, faced her down and uh, came out the victor to some extent. She didn't give up in her fight against Ambrose at this point, however, and she next tried a different tack by having her son sign a royal edict imperially declaring the orthodox Nicene Christianity to be heretical. And so she's trying it from a different side. She summoned Ambrose to appear in court and defend his theology. He refused. He went into a church instead. Uh, She sent soldiers to arrest him, and he stayed in the church. Uh, While he was in the church, he wrote antiphonal songs and taught his congregation to sing them. And so they somewhat taunted the army on the outside by singing to them from inside the church. Eventually, Ambrose preached a sermon in the church while he was still holed up in there in which he said that God has greater power than the government and the church is superior to the state and the bishop is not, uh, not answerable to the emperor. Eventually, the edict was rescinded and he won that face down as well. This was a, a brave man. On the other side of the coin is that this was kind of the beginning of the, of the rise of what came to be later the, uh, the corrupted Catholic Church in which political power was exercised by the church itself over emperors. But, uh, but on the positive side, he is in the name of Christ standing up against secular power. After, after the boy emperor was gone, another emperor named Theodosius took his place. And, uh, and Ambrose had at least two confrontations with Theodosius. On one occasion, some anti-Semitic Christians, so-called, burned a Jewish synagogue. And uh, the emperor ordered Ambrose to rebuild the synagogue from, from Christian funds. Ambrose refused and said it would be uh, apostasy if he did that. And the emperor eventually withdrew his order, and Ambrose was the victor in that showdown. On another occasion, Theodosius's army, while in Macedonia, slaughtered about 7,000 people in the city of Thessalonica. Ambrose heard about it and confronted the emperor directly and said this was a sin and a great sin. These were defenseless people. They were innocent people, and you must do penance for it. The emperor eventually did public penance. And again, the church showed itself to have greater spiritual power than the uh, empire did. I think the main point that Mark uh, would like for us to take from Ambrose's life is that here's a man who, though not originally a church man or particularly maybe even a pious man, became a man very committed to the Lord. And in the name of his, of his authority as a bishop in Milan, uh, he, he actually stood his ground on at least uh, three occasions against two different emperors at the risk of his life uh, to defend what he believed was the integrity of the church. Ambrose uh, is also known, as I mentioned, for his role in the life of St. Augustine. Mark had invited me to uh, feel free to share some personal th- stories this morning to bring this down to modern times, not, not to say that anybody I'm going to be talking about is in the in this category with Ambrose, uh, neither in power nor stature or anything else, but, uh, but just because we're real people living on the ground today, perhaps it will be uh, of some interest and encouragement to talk about some stories from real life and, and our own experience. My uh, 
grandparents on my father's side were sharecroppers in North Alabama and were dirt poor. They lived in a shack that didn't have a doorknob on the, uh, on the door. It had a spool, an empty thread spool nailed to the door. And the lock was a latch that had a, a shoestring going through a little hole in the door to the inside. And you pull on the string and open the latch and pull on the spool and open the door. Uh, on, my, on my mother's side, my grandparents were missionaries in Africa for 60-something years. Uh, they went to Africa in 1921 uh, when it was uh, like going away for the rest of your life and didn't know if you'd ever come back or not. My mother was born in what's now Rhodesia and lived in uh, what's now Zambia and Rhodesia for her life until she reached college age. When my grandfather, whose name was Short, was a young man, this was about the time of World War I, and he was uh, unofficially, because the government didn't recognize the category, what we now call a conscientious objector. And so he decided that he would not kill even in the service of his government. He did not think he had a right to refuse to go to war, however, and so he became a soldier when he was drafted and uh, took training and carried a weapon, but he had determined that if he ever faced an enemy, he would be killed rather than kill someone else. As it happened, he never had to go into battle, and the, and the day that he was about to be shipped out to the front line, the war ended. I'm not asking you to necessarily agree with his position. Some of you will, some of you will not, but uh, I'm just saying that this was a story that I grew up hearing of integrity and of putting God first above government even, uh, and God honored that and protected him. When he was an older man, after spending 60 years on the mission field, he, he was in his 80s and lived in what's, what was then called Bulawayo in uh, Rhodesia. It's now Harare, I think, in, 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 in Zimbabwe. Uh, and at that time, the, uh, the Marxist revolutionaries were taking over the government, and there were many guerrillas and frankly, uh, Europeans and Americans were at risk if they lived in the country. Many of his friends urged my grandfather to, to buy weapons to defend himself in case terrorists broke into his house. But he said he would not do that, that uh, he had served God all of these years and that God would take care of him. And so he refused to buy a weapon. I think God honored that by a particularly... Uh, holy death when he was about 85 years old he was in his uh, customary morning devotions after breakfast went to his bedroom and sat on the on the bed and read his bible and prayed he didn't come out and they went in to check on him and found him sitting on the bed with his bible open in his lap and he had gone to the lord in that position I grew up with stories like this uh, about my ancestors, which inspired me to try to live that way. And I, I do not say that I have always done that. Uh, in fact, I confess that sometimes I have not. But another story from my grandfather's life that inspired me as a child was uh, along this line. Our family has been for several generations uh, preachers and missionaries and teachers and elders in churches of Christ. Uh, some of you know that I'm an elder in the Bering Drive Church of Christ. Some of you don't know it. I'm a rather ecumenical person. This morning I attended uh, 
Church of the Holy Apostles Episcopal in Katy before I came up here uh, because I thought I may as well cover the globe. And uh, so I had a wonderful time there, and now I'm having a wonderful time with you, Baptists, and uh, next week I'll be back in my Church of Christ. But uh, my, my grandfather, when he went to Africa, was of the majority opinion in the Church of Christ, which is not premillennial. Uh, there is a premillennial wing in the Church of Christ. But while he was over there in the 1940s, a leading uh, American evangelist in the Church of Christ, who was a very fire-eating kind of a pugilistic debating sort by the name of Foy E. Wallace, began a crusade against premillennial people in the Church of Christ. And the word got out that my grandfather had an associate missionary who was premillennial. And so the ultimatum came from the United States to my grandfather, you must denounce this this man who's one of your associates or else face the consequences. And he said to them, I don't know whether he's premillennial or not. I'm not sure whether I am or not, but I know that's not the way Christians behave. <laughs> and he refused to, to do any such thing. At, at that point, the folks in the United States said, well, if you won't denounce him, we'll take care of you. And so they contacted all of his supporting churches and told them that he was not a faithful preacher and to cut off his support, which they did. And so he found employment making wagon wheels and farming for several years until that crisis had passed and he eventually regained support. But this was the kind of conviction that uh, that I grew up hearing stories about and admiring. My own father, as I said, was the son of sharecroppers in North Alabama. <clears throat> he uh, he uh, went to Abilene Christian College, as it was called in those days, and met my mother, who had come over from Africa to go to Abilene Christian. And then they moved back to North Alabama, where my dad had grown up, in Limestone County, the county seat is Athens. And uh, he started a, a Christian school, grades 1 through 12. He eventually also started a Christian publishing business, which primarily produced Sunday school workbooks for churches of Christ and independent Christian churches. As time passed, that became a, a very uh, commonly used product in those particular fellowships, and, uh, and his business did quite well. But about that time in the 1950s, there was a, 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 a crisis or a conflict within the Churches of Christ over cooperative uh, mission work and, uh, and what they call sponsoring churches. And I, the nearest thing I can compare it to with, with Baptist Church would be the difference between con- Southern Baptist Convention people and independent fundamentalist Baptists who don't believe in cooperative efforts. That's pretty much the kind of difference there was here. My dad had always been a a, a local point man for a cooperative church program called Herald of Truth Radio and Television, but he decided in the 1950s while studying the subject that uh, he really didn't think that was a scriptural way to do things and changed his mind to be the other way. When the uh, people at Herald of Truth learned about that, one of the leaders contacted him and said, I understand you've switched to be an anti, which is what they call people on the other side, non-supporters. And he said, well, I'm not uh, anything except just a Christian, but I've decided that this is not the right way that we should do this. 
And this man said, well, in that case, you know, it's my duty to warn faithful Christians everywhere not to order anything from your publishing business because you're no longer standing with the truth. And he said, well, you do what you must. I have to say what I believe is right. And, uh, and so they began to boycott his business and eventually forced him into bankruptcy, which he accepted as the price of his convictions. The interesting thing, <laughs> interesting thing is that although he was treated that way by some of those people, he, he continued to regard those people as his brothers and sisters in Christ and wanted to have fellowship with them as much as he could. So much so that when he died in 1972, there were many preachers of his non-cooperative uh, persuasion who, who refused to attend his funeral because they said he was soft on liberals and, and associated too much with the other side. So he kind of got shot at by both sides, like the guy in the Civil War that wore a gray pants and a blue, blue jacket. But those were kind of the stories I grew up under, and they had a great impression on me. When, when I was born, uh, I was, I was uh, six weeks premature, and I was born in a country hospital out in the county, in Limestone County, Alabama. This was 1944. Uh, conditions were not quite what they are today for taking care of babies. As I said, I was six weeks premature. My mother had to, had to be in bed three months of her pregnancy before I was born. And I was her first child, and I was Caesarean. She later had five other children by natural birth, but... Uh, when I was born, uh, at first I could not take nourishment and would not digest anything. I don't remember this, of course, but this is what I was told. Uh, I'm, I'm getting so I do well to remember last week. But uh, I didn't take nourishment, and, and, and it appeared I might be about to starve to death. And the doctor tried many different kinds of formulas. Finally, he tried goat's milk with something, and, and they say it worked. And I did quite well, and now I have a battle the other direction. But uh, during, during that time when, when it was uncertain whether I was going to live or die, my father later told me that he had prayed all, all, all night one night to the Lord to ask him to spare me and saying that if he would, he would dedicate me to him to be God's servant in a special way. Shortly after that, uh, something began to work. I don't know exactly what, but I lived and, as they say, did quite well. I grew up with those kinds of stories. Um, I grew up going to Athens Bible School, which my dad had started, grades 1 through 12, where we had chapel every day and Bible every day. When I was five years old, my dad, who had studied Greek in college to read the New Testament, he also preached every Sunday, uh, began to teach me Greek, and he was intending to teach me Greek as I learned English so that I could be fluent in reading the New Testament by the time I learned to read English. Unfortunately, his business got busier, and he was taken away from his uh, schooling, and so I only learned the Greek alphabet when I was six years old and never picked up any more until I went to college. But my father had those kinds of intentions, and I grew up uh, with people always assuming I would be a preacher. Uh, in those days in the country where I lived, uh, little old ladies at church would come up and pat me on the head and say, well, I guess you're going to make a preacher someday. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but that's what they thought, so I thought it must be true. 
I really was kind of expected to be a preacher and didn't have too much uh, thoughts of ever doing anything else. When I was in the 11th grade, I started preaching every Sunday at little churches in the country and basically did that from 1961 until 1982 when we moved to Houston. When it was college time, I went to college in Florida and Tampa at a, a junior Christian college operated by the wing of the Church of Christ that my family was part of, which was not mainstream, as I said. It was like fundamentalist Baptist compared to convention Baptist. I went there three years and then transferred to Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, and did a bachelor's and master's degree there in Greek, at which time I was kind of viewed with suspicion by everybody when I was at Florida Christian I was uh, thought of as being too liberal for them. And when I went to Abilene, they didn't trust me because I'd come from Florida. And then to make matters worse, I went to a Presbyterian seminary and uh, was considered an Armenian heretic until I got out. And then the Church of Christ thought I was a Calvinist. So, uh, what am, I mean, I've been to an Episcopal church this morning and here I am teaching in a Baptist church. <laughs> but uh, it's been a very interesting life. After, after Abilene Christian uh, University, I went to St. Louis, Missouri, and was uh, preaching for a church of Christ there uh, in the suburb of St. Louis called Kirkwood with the intent of, of going into a graduate program and getting a Ph.D. to be a teacher. While I was there, I attended Eden Seminary, which is liberal United Church of Christ, and I attended Covenant Seminary, which was conservative Presbyterian. Francis Schaefer was one of my teachers at Covenant. Uh, I was there from 1968 to 1972 and was taking classes to get into St. Louis University, as I said, to, to train to be a professor. In 1972, my dad, who was 57, suddenly died of a heart attack, and uh, we felt we should move back to Alabama to help my mother with a family business. Uh, that interrupted the plans I thought my life were going to take, uh, the direction, and, and we went back to Alabama. Shortly before my father died, he had purchased a, a, a Christian publication called Gospel Guardian, which had been the chief paper uh, of the uh, anti-cooperation side of the Church of Christ. And it had really been a nasty paper. It, it, it was always fighting people and writing people up and debating people and exposing people and this kind of trashy stuff. But my dad had the idea of taking it and turning it into a good magazine that would be a devotional family kind of paper, and that was what he was intending to do when he died. However, because he died and I moved back to Alabama to work in the family publishing business, and the family publishing business owned the Gospel Guardian paper, the other paper, which was the main paper for the hardline people, was called Truth Magazine. And they considered that I was a very dangerous person since I was now in the seat in the company that owned the other paper. And I was soft on their issues. And, and primarily because I was preaching grace. And I, and, I, and I was also saying we should have fellowship with Christians whether they were of their same party or not. Uh, but this they considered heresy. They called it the Grace Unity Heresy. And uh, just about every week for three years, they wrote me up in their paper denouncing me and our paper and our company and everything we stood for. Uh, my mother decided about a year into that that she didn't, or about two years into that, she decided 
that she was not wanting to continue to be a publishing company manager herself without my father there. And so she went back to Africa to live with her parents who were in their 80s and take care of them until they died. She sold the publishing company, the family business that we had had and my father started. She sold the company to a group of 20 businessmen who just formed a consortium who were all from the kind of churches that we belonged to and were thought to be friends. In 1975, however, after three years of being attacked by this other paper constantly, one day I was at the print shop which we used for our business in the nearby town, and I got a call from my mother's uh, secretary and said, you may not want to come back to the office today. Roy Cogdell and Cecil Willis are here, and they've taken over the company. Well, Cecil Willis was the editor of the paper that had been attacking us for three years, and Roy Cogdell was the publisher. And they had secretly bought the company through from these other 20 men without us ever being told what was going on. I said, I'm not going to ditch my mother. If she's there, I'll be there. So I went back to the office. Uh, the president of the company, who had sold it to these other guys, called me into the, to my mother's office where my father's portrait was on the wall and said, uh, Brother Cogdell, who was the chief man in this whole enterprise, wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. So uh, I went in to see what he had to say. And he said, uh, he said, the company has been purchased by a man in California named Bohannon. And he said, Brother Bohannon is a very good man and a generous man. And if you will re- repudiate your false teaching on grace and unity, uh, he'll take care of you the rest of your life. And the first thing that popped in my mind was the story of Philip and, and, Simon's, uh, Philip and Simon the sorcerer when he tried to purchase the gift of God with money. And Philip said, your money perish with you. And I thought, well, this is good scriptural ground. So I said, you can tell Brother Bohannon to take his money and go to hell. <laughs> and, then he, and then he thought of a Bible verse that said his countenance fell and his countenance fell. <laughs> and he got up and immediately left the room. Uh, I walked back into my mother's office and the president of the company walked back in and said, in a few minutes and said, I have a message for you. And I said, what's that? And he said, "Uh, you're fired. And I said, just like that? And he said, well, I think you have two weeks vacation. So I went home and told my wife, uh, I've got good news and bad news. She had just come home from the hospital two weeks earlier with our new son. And we were making at that time $160 a week. I got $80 a week from the publishing company and $80 a week from preaching at a country church. So here was half of our income gone. Uh, And I said, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? And she said, I think I'd like the good news first. And I said, the good news is I've got three weeks pay in my pocket. The bad news is I don't get any more. So for a year I was unemployed and tried to just do freelance publishing and freelance writing for businesses and whatever I could find. And the Lord provided in an almost miraculous way during that time. In fact, we would frequently have bills at the first of the month, and I would go out in our backyard and say to the Lord, Lord, here are the bills, and here's the money, and the bills are bigger than the money. You've got to do something. And more times than one, I would get a letter in the mailbox the next day from somebody I hadn't seen for years who would say, I was just thinking of you and wondered if you could use this money. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I wanted to send it to you, and it would be just what we needed. (laughs) 
I was still preaching at this country church. This was this was a country, country church. I doubt if any of you have ever been to a church as country as this one was. The men wore overalls. Uh, the men nearly all smoked cigarettes. And on the way in the church building between class, they'd go out and have a smoke. And then they'd come stand on the front porch and take a real long draw and flip it out in the yard and walk in the building blowing smoke. The women sat on one side of the building and the men sat on the other. And these were old-time, countryfied, good as gold in their everyday life, but very narrowly taught people who believed they were the only ones going to heaven. And so uh, they had never had elders in that church for 40 years that it had existed. And while I was there, I, I created elders and, and ordained elders. As it turned out, it was maybe a mistake on my part because then they turned around and fired me. Uh, <laughs> When they fired me, they said, "They said uh, we we're, we're letting you go because we've never had a preacher here more than two years, and you've been here four. Well, that was a, a weighty reason. And then they said, "We're not accusing you of saying it, but some of the members have gotten the idea that you think the Baptists and Methodists might also go to heaven." <laughs> and I said, "I'm glad they caught on." And then the other thing was we had had a, an African-American brother visit us in a revival recently who I called on for prayer. And one of the main men in the church hit the ceiling about that. And so on a Sunday morning, I heard that he was very angry with me. And I went out on the front porch where the men were smoking and said, I understand you have a problem. He said, yeah, what would you call on him for prayer for? And I said, well, why not? He said, they've got their own church. They should go to it. And I said, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? And he said, well, all I can say is if they're going to be there, God better have other arrangements for me. And with my usual tact, I said, well, with an attitude like that, you don't have to worry about it. All of which is to say that I may not be too smart, but I've at least tried to be faithful. After the, uh, after the church let me go, there were a group of us who had started meeting in our home on Tuesday nights from different churches of Christ. I was about 31 years old at the time. Maybe, I guess, yeah, 31. And, uh, and these other people were in their 20s and early 30s. There were about six or eight of us. And we would meet on Tuesday nights at our house and read through a chapter, a book in the New Testament around the room and then have prayer and, uh, and worship together just as an enriching experience because our churches were not particularly enriching, even though I was a preacher in mine. <laughs> uh, but this was such a good fellowship that when, when I got fired from preaching, we decided to start a church of our own, and we didn't want to be denominational, so we just put up a sign that said, uh, Elm Street Church, a meeting place for Christians. And when Church of Christ people, of which there were 50 churches in our county and about that many Baptist churches and about half that many Methodists and one Catholic, and that was just about the county, everybody belonged to one of those three big ones mostly. But uh, when Church of Christ people would ask us, are you a Church of Christ? We would say yes in the Bible sense. And when people from other churches would ask, if, are you a Church of Christ? We'd say no, not in a denominational sense. <laughs> so we kind of had the best of both worlds. Well, I was, I was the, uh, actually the unofficial unpaid pastor there for six years, during which time I got a job in a print shop as a typesetter to make a living because God quit sending money through the mail, and uh, I decided he wanted me to get a regular job. 
So from 1976 to 1982, I worked as a typesetter in a print shop. During that time, I began to, to eagerly look for some other means of employment that would utilize some of my training or experience. And I, I sent resumes all over the country and, and answered all sorts of responses and ads and, and made inquiries and tried to teach, tried to get a teaching job, tried to get all sorts of jobs, and nothing, nothing, nothing ever opened up. Uh, one one morning I was on my way to work, driving to work, and uh, and I used to used to complain to the Lord on my way to work, and I said, Lord, uh, what's going on here? You've given me all these opportunities and for learning and training and so forth and experiences, but where has all this gotten me? And immediately I heard a voice in my head that said, You've got the question wrong. It isn't where has this gotten you. It's have you been faithful with what you've been given. And I was convicted, and I said, I think I have. I've tried to be. While I was at the print shop, I I joined an organization, or actually wrote into an organization that was a job-finding place for Christian people around the country called InterCristo. And I sent them a resume and package of what they wanted, and they sent it to a number of people, and they sent me a list of places that were looking for people who might have similar talents to mine. One of those was a man in Houston, Texas named Michael Cabanis, who was a member at Second Baptist Church. And, uh, and Mike uh, wanted to start a Christian newspaper. I sent a resume in. Uh, they contacted me and had me come out for an interview. There was a board here in Houston that was going to start the paper. And... Uh, and I came to Houston and interviewed and went back. And, and, and about two or three weeks later, one night I said to my wife, I don't know how to explain this, but I feel like I'm going to be invited to go to Houston. Are you willing to move to Houston? And she said, well, I don't want to leave my house. Then my daddy put things in the yard and we've built our house and all that and our friends. But if it's what we need to do, that's what we'll do. The next morning I went to work, and uh, as I was doing my typesetting job, I had a little spare time, and I was reading a Keith Miller devotional book called Habitation of Dragons. At the end of the chapter that I read that day, which was about being open to God's unexpected guidance, uh, his devotional ended by with a little prayer that said, Dear Lord, let me know today I am free to go or to stay. Let me not be afraid to do what seems best for me and my family. And just as I finished reading that, the telephone rang and somebody said, Hey, Fudge, it's for you. And I went to the phone and it was Mike Cabinus in Houston. He said, Our board met for breakfast this morning and we've prayed about it and we think we'd like to give you the job. Are you willing to come? And I said, I think I'm guided by God to do that. So we uprooted and moved to Houston. My little girl was going into second grade. My son was in first grade. And they were, their concern was whether Houston had McDonald's since we were leaving the big city of Athens, Alabama. And uh, so we moved to Houston. Interestingly, after we got here and, and, and I'd started the paper, it was called The Good Newspaper, and it lasted for three years, uh, after which I went to law school and ended up being a lawyer at age 43. But uh, after we'd been here a year or two, Mike Cabanis, the publisher, and I were having lunch one day, and he said, did you ever wonder why... Uh, why we hired you instead of all the other people who applied. And I said, well, I would be interested to know. 
He said, well, we narrowed it down to about 12. And he said, of all those 12, you were the only one with typesetting experience. And we thought that might come in handy sometime. So I've just been in amazement all my life at how God works and uses things that you don't expect are part of the plan to be the next step. He's been faithful. He's always taken care of us. He's given us far more than we ever expected to have in friends and opportunities. And now, particularly uh, from my point of view in the uh, Internet ministry with Grace Mail and opportunities to speak and teach. Uh, in 2000, I went to New Zealand and spoke in a Baptist college and an interdenominational seminary and three Baptist churches and one church of Christ for two weeks. And I've had uh, opportunities to speak at Fuller Seminary and the Gordon-Conwell Seminary. All of this from a little boy from Athens, Alabama, who used to pick cotton in the fall to buy winter clothes. But uh, God is faithful. The most we can do for Him is to be faithful back. And at best, we don't do a good job of it, but it's our best effort to try. And we give Him all the glory for everything that He does. Thank you for coming today. I've enjoyed sharing with you. This hasn't been a Bible class, but maybe it's been something worthwhile for you. Have a good week in the Lord.